1: My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Colin Sherrick. Uh, we're at Day Camp Day Wines in Dundee, uh, it's Thursday, March twelfth, two thousand and twenty. Thanks so much for joining us today, Colin. Thanks for having me. Uh, first question, most important question: Why wine?
0: Um, I, you know, I, I knew that you were going to open with that question, and so I've been thinking about it, and I don't really have a like a a, a singular answer. Um, I know there are a lot of moments in my life where I've been like, oh, wine. Um, one of, the, one of the most poignant moments happened in Anderson Valley in California. And I was tasting wine at a place called Lazy Creek. And it's a very small family winery. Um, and we were tasting in the cellar. Their kids' toys were everywhere. There was like a nice couple of cheeses on the bar. And it was really small and family oriented. And I just thought to myself, I want this. This is cool. This is really cool. So I think, I think family, I think small, Uh, Volumes and uh, Intimacy are the things that brought me to wine. Um, I dropped out of grad school in 2004 and I was looking for something to do. I was studying uh, sculpture at the time and um, I started working in a cafe and drinking lots of wine and getting involved with the wine list and wine buying and that was in the Bay Area so every weekend I'd go out and taste wine. And, uh, you know, just got really involved in, in that sort of lifestyle and um, sort of like really enjoyed the locales where grapes were being grown, so I thought like, you know, this is, this is a good sort of art and science com- kind of like world that I could really feel comfortable in.
1: So yeah, tell me about building about that kind of like learning wine that way, building a wine list, being involved on that end. Uh, how what did you learn about wine that was that made you want to learn more about wine?
0: Well, just that I knew so little, you know, and and I, and the more you learn, the less you know. So there's this sort of sort of abyss of wine knowledge to have. So yeah, I, I don't get bored of it ever, which is awesome. Um, so yeah, that and you know just just the acquisition of of experience and knowledge and, uh, you know, also kind of food and family and, you know, sitting down at the table with delicious food and delicious wine and that sort of aspect of communality that's really cool.
1: So tell me, from there, where did, where did you go next?
0: Well, so then I moved to New Zealand um, and I got a, uh, a sort of a graduate diploma is what it's called. It's basically a post-baccalaureate um, in viticulture and oenology at Lincoln University and uh, yeah, spent spent the better part between 2007 and 2012 bouncing between uh, Oregon and New Zealand, um, which I'll probably get to more
1: later. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Why Oregon?
0: Um, well, not to sound too much like a fanboy but because of Steve Dorner from Christum. Um I, one of, one of you know people always talk about those aha wines that you have. One of my aha wines was a um, a Calera, uh, that Steve had made, and uh, then I realized that Steve wasn't at Calera anymore; he was at Christum. And then I had the fortune of working for a couple places in New Zealand that had um, their winemakers had interned at Christum. So in 2008, I got the opportunity to, to, to go to Christum and to work with Steve. Um, which was pretty awesome. It was a really, really,
1: really fun vintage. Tell me about that. Tell me about your first time in Oregon making wine.
0: Um, it was cool. I mean, so, so to back up just a tiny bit, like sure. I do have family in Oregon. I'd spent um, the summers here my whole time growing up. Um, so I had this preconception of what Oregon was. And I'd never really been out to the valley. I'd never really interacted with the, uh, the, the viticulture out here. So my first time being here, I was just, blown away with uh, the kindness, with the sense of community, and the sense of kind of, um, I don't know, just, just like, just the, there's, there was a unique, special vibe to the place during, during that time for me. And, uh, you know, 2008 was kind of a... a Really, like, a, a good vintage, high quality vintage. I think it might, have, might be hyped up a little bit, but, like, you know, we're, they're still, the wines are still opening up, so we're not sure <laughs> how they're going to taste in 10 years. But it was really cool to, to, to have my first vintage in Oregon be 2008 because of that. Um,
1: yeah. Wanna back up a little bit just sort of talking about from going from the idea of I enjoy wine, I like drinking wine, I like wine lists, to like actually going to another country right. to get a degree right. and yeah, actually yeah. coming back to Oregon. So sure. talk about that, that leap from in, sure. into into the production. Sure.
0: So um being being a maker already, being someone that loved to, you know, work with my hands and build stuff and figure out how things are put together, uh that I just figured like, oh, I'll just make I'll make wine my medium basically. Um, like I'll I'll st- I'll stop putting duct tape on things and and you know being like a weird artist and just start working with grapes and just do the same thing but just be able to drink it afterwards, you know. Um, so so that's that's why that's why I, I still wanted to make something. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, why New Zealand? Uh, I, I looked at all the all the education available i looked at davis i looked at fresno um i looked at adelaide and uh i didn't want to go to school for five years to get my degree i wanted to get going (laughs) so uh i got in touch with glenn creasy at lincoln who is an absolute wizard legend person in the in the wine industry he's amazing his wife Kristen is amazing too um and uh he said, yeah, come down, and, come down and learn how to make wine in New Zealand. And I always, I wanted to go for a trip, you know, I wanted to get out of the U.S. and um, broaden my horizons a little bit. So that was an incredible time.
1: You talk about having preconceptions of Oregon. I, I assume at this point you also had some sort of preconceptions of making wine, of, of what it was like to make wine. Tell me about the kind of shock, I guess, or, or what, what surprised you about what it actually takes to make wine?
0: Well, it's interesting. Um, I... I didn't really have a lot of preconceptions about how to make wine because I really didn't know how to make wine. I mean, I had no idea. Like I was pretty pretty much as green as you could get. So, um, and then you know, having having insight into into Steve's process right away, um, it felt so natural to me the way that he makes wine, and it felt so intuitive and uh, straightforward that it made so much sense. And then, so the shock came subsequent vintages later when I was working at more traditional winemaking places and, and places that I hate saying, like, follow a recipe, mm-hmm. but, you know, that tick all the boxes that go through everything um, and, and, you know, don't sort of just improvise along with the grapes. Um, so that was really my shock, was like, wait, you what do you do? How, no, don't do that. Like, I already had these preconceptions from working at christom that I was like, no, this is how you do it. like so. That was the shock for me. Up until then, I was kind of just wandering around like a doe in the woods, you know? It was pretty, it was pretty cool. We're talking
1: about, tell me about the 2008 vintage then, and, and about what, you, what, part, what role you played, and, and sort of like you talk about the learning, that, that, that style. Right, uh, right. What did you take away from that that you eventually wanted to take for your own project?
0: Um, I mean, a lot. A lot of everything. Like, I, you know, I'll, I'll happily say I steal from Steve. Uh, he, but, uh, I mean, I, you know, it's sort of his, his, his method of always being present for the wine without having to manipulate the wine. You know, like always being there to make sure that if the wine ha- starts heading towards a cliff, he can kind of steer it away from that cliff without having to be like, this is how I want you to be, you know. Let's, it kind of lets the grapes speak for themselves. Uh, he, his, he has so many little euphemisms like Yogi Bear, almost, but um, you know, one is that he's like, I'm not, I'm not a winemaker, I'm a yeast farmer. You know, like I don't, <laughs> I don't do anything. I just make sure, it's like, to create a situation that that uh, um, is, is produces beneficial results.
1: Something good could happen. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Like, so, so you, if you create a situation where where positive results can happen, then you don't have to do as much to the wine. I, I'll never say wine makes itself because I don't believe that, but think the less you can do to it. The less you stay out of the way, the better.
1: Mm-hmm. So you talk about seven, so 2007 to 12, you're kind of bouncing back and forth. You, you've got the uh, internship at Christum. you're mm-hmm. working in it. So me about where else you were working in that time and kind of what happened at, at next.
0: Well, so um, the first job I had was at Felton Road in New Zealand. Um, and it was in the vineyard. And so I, right out of the gate, I got a real good sort of um, real good uh handle on like touching grapes touching vines like really you know knowing what that's all about being in the field like seeing how grapes grow Mm -hmm. um so that was a huge education for me and uh it was really fun too um being in another country and you know just waking up every day at six in the morning and you know working your ass off coming home exhausted Mm -hmm. but like really getting a lot of good feeling out of you know the sort of zenning out on the monotonous work of, of grape growing um, that was really fun and then uh, so after Christum uh, I got a, a permanent gig at Domain Druin and I was a seller master or seller supervisor at Domain Druin uh, for two years almost to the day um, so I worked the 10 and 11 vintages at Domain Druin and uh, you know it was really there that I learned perseverance um, the 10 11 vintages were very difficult, but in my opinion, produce some of the, the most uh, beautiful wine that I've that I've drunk from Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love the acidity. I really love the structure, and sort of the uh, the volume of the wine. It's not um, it's not shouting at you. It's it's you know it's sort of acoustically balanced. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, so 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 that I learned so much about about uh, how to sort of like mix the sounding board on a wine um which was cool it was really fun and also uh learning how to make chardonnay from veronique was mm-hmm. incredible mm-hmm. i love chardonnay and i love the way she makes wine so um tell that me, was
1: really fun tell me about how she differed from steve in, in terms of winemaking approach
0: well i mean not a whole lot you know you, there, there aren't that many ways to make wine you know like people always tout their differences but in reality you still have to do all the same things it's still grapes it's still you know so i think I think accentuating our similarities is more important than accentuating our differences mm-hmm. um, you know her her method was a little bit more conventional but really not that much um, and I think the energy that I got from both of them was don't worry too much about it you know be there for it and be be present but don't don't freak out mm-hmm. you know if you, if you're if you're worried about something just take a day or two to think about it and you know go from there um so that's cool
1: even in a difficult vintages like those
0: yeah even i mean you know like you know especially it's there's always like two or three weeks before harvest when you're like what is going to happen and you're waiting for the hammer to drop and um so you know those are the hard weeks but after that happens you just start working and you start doing it and once you get going on it it's fine you know
1: Talking about learning perseverance, was there a particular moment or particular issue that you dealt with during one of those vintages that was particularly like, it made an imprint on you?
0: Um, I mean, without without getting too much, like, ah, um I, I, think, I, I think most lo- winemakers would be lying if they said they don't have a moment every vintage where they're like, this is the last time I ever want to do this. Um, this I'm like, I haven't slept in... A full night's sleep in a month and a half, and I've been working ninety hours a week, and you know it really it really tests your uh, your physical strength and your kind of mental sanity. And uh, I remember um, in in twenty eleven um, loading the last press of Chardonnay, and it being maybe forty two degrees outside, maybe maybe forty, and you know like physically putting the grapes in the press and. Uh, you know, your hands were just—you couldn't feel your hands by the end of it—and you know, so you're just cold for weeks on end. You're wet for weeks on end. Um, so that, you know, that those are—that's like the type two fun of winemaking. You know, where like, it sucks when you're doing it, but then you you sit down and you look back on what what has happened, and you, you know, it's pretty cool. You can look back on, feel feel like some satisfaction on it. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's always at least one or two moments every vintage where, you know. You just like, this is it. I don't want to do this anymore. you <laughs> go find an office job. With That's an it. Air conditioner. That's it. I, I just put me in a tasting room. <laughs> it's fine. I don't care anymore.
1: <laughs> did you ever, from the start, once you started getting your education, did you ever seriously consider stopping? Was it all where you, were you kind of hooked from the beginning? Oh,
0: I have stopped. Oh, I have stopped. Okay. There, were, there was a time um, after the 14 vintage where I went back to school to study graphic design. Um, and I realized that, w- that was a really important moment for me because I realized like I'm just gonna have to go through the same set of set of issues that I'm going through now with another career. Like it's not gonna change. It's just it's just you know, moving constantly through through what you're doing and, and time and just, you know, like the writers say, ass and see, you know, like just, just doing the work for long enough and persevering over it. So I'm glad I'm back. I'm glad I'm back.
1: Us <laughs> too. So tell me about so after doing Druin, before that, uh, tell me kind of take me on the rest of your path up to you s- starting your own brand.
0: Um, well, you know, so so uh, I worked I worked uh, after I left Druin. I uh, I lived in New Zealand for a while, and um, that that was another kind of rough time in my life. Like I I wasn't quite sure what I was doing. I accepted a job that I wasn't too happy with, so I ended up leaving it about three months into it, came back home. Um, but I got the chance to work down in Sonoma at a company or a winery called Hirsch. Um, and they're on the very Sonoma coast. I mean, you can see the Pacific Ocean from the vineyards, for some of the vineyards. Um, and I realized that like, even though people love to tout that pinot can only grow very well in these specific pockets, like, yes, I agree with that. But there's there are many, there are many uh, ways to do pinot. There are many ways to, Basically, I mean, more than Pinot. There are just there are many ways to make beautiful wine, and you can do it everywhere in the world. And you know that you don't need you don't need a you need a unique terroir, but you don't need a specific terroir mm-hmm. for that. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that, and uh, you know, it's just it, what I learned down there was kind of a continuation of you know the, the energy I felt at Christum and the energy I felt at Domaine druin mm-hmm. So I thought that was really fun too. <clears throat>
1: So what made you come back to wine then?
0: Well, it's Oregon, you know, like the, the, this place is incredible. Uh, it's, it's so unique to growing, to producing the kind of wine it does. Um, and, you know, you look at some of the issues that other places have. I mean, Oregon has its own set of issues, but um, it doesn't have a lot of the issues that other places do. Um, I really, I really believe in non-irrigation of vines. And, Um, I really love high acid wines, and I really love wines with fruit and with structure. And um, sort of, a lot of the time, wine that I really like is sort of like a spring that's coiled and that will slowly uncoil over the years. And um, I find that the way that the spring is coiled in Oregon is really, really good. For me, it resonates really well. Um, So, you know, and the fact that uh, it's still a pretty small community. Uh, people are still really friendly and really supportive of each other. Um, that really makes me
1: happy. So, what point did you decide you need to start your own thing?
0: Um, when I realized that I couldn't, I couldn't work in a winery uh, the way that at, at the level that um, other wineries would want me to work at. I need, I need to be a little more peace. I need to be a little more kind of quiet and calm and. Uh, Um, just kind of like choose my own adventure make my own wine make my own decisions uh make my own mistakes Mm -hmm. um you know if if the wine isn't isn't the way i intended it to then that's on me you know there's no there's no there's no second guessing you know or there's plenty of second guessing but there's no second guessing of other people so um and it feels really good and also coming from art like that's process and and having something that you create that's your own thing is really kind of cool too, Mm -hmm. so.
1: To start your own thing, tell me about the process then of everything, of figuring out what you're gonna make, where you're gonna make it, what your label's gonna be, all of that.
0: Well, so I mean, I I think like, at least for myself, like I've been thinking about that since the first day of winemaking school. Mm -hmm. You know, I've always thought, okay, what do I wanna do? What do I wanna make? You know, what which wines do I resonate with? How do they do it? you know like let's figure out like let's figure out it, taste the wine figure out that you like that wine and then figure out how they make it and then figure out uh a way to incorporate that into your own process mm-hmm. um and then and then kind of build this stew of different ingredients to uh to sort of make your own stew with you know different ingredients from things that you've learned over the years for other people um so yeah and then a lot of it also is just improv improvisation, you know, you're, you're kind of going, okay, well, this happened, this didn't happen, we've got this now instead of that, what do we do with this? Mm-hmm. You know, this is what we have, we're in the moment, we got to figure this out, let's go with this, you know. Uh, great, great example of that is the 2017 rosé that I have. Um, it, was, it was intended to be a Pinot, a still Pinot. Uh, the Eagle Creek fire happened. Uh, the level of smoke was higher than I wanted it to be. And uh, so I said, okay, we're gonna make a rosé out of it. And that, that happening, it was a horrible event, but that, that event changed my view of the vineyard, changed the way I wanna make that wine. I made a rosé, well, I've made a, I have not made a Pinot Noir out of it the past two years since that, that event. Mm-hmm. So um, just learning to roll with it is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you're gonna, you're gonna get roadblocks bu- road and speed bumps and all that stuff.
1: You talk about finding finding wines that resonate with you and then trying to kind of reverse engineer them to Yeah, you. yeah, yeah. So tell me what resonated with you and and set you on what you wanted to make with, with Alto Cirrus.
0: Um too I mean too many to list. But uh, you know, I think I think a good friend of mine who passed away a couple years ago said she said, I like drinking medium bodied high acid reds and whites. And I I'll add orange and rose onto that. But um, when she said it, I was like, yeah, that's it. It's not that difficult. Like, That's what you do. You just, like, you want a wine that that uh, is food-friendly, uh, has enough acid to, you know, sort of last over the years and not feel too sweet or too flabby. Mm-hmm. And uh, you want enough body so that it's, you know, present in your palate, but nothing that's, you know, kinda, like, too light or too heavy. Mm-hmm. So, I just kind of, you know, she said that, and I was like, damn, that's right. And, uh, yeah, was, I'm really grateful that you know we were able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So tell me about the about your label, about your name.
0: Um, okay, so I'm sure some people have said this before, but uh, every wine label that you could ever think of is already taken. <laughs> so um, you know there were about a thousand paths that we all went down, and uh, the the path that started with this with ended up with Alto Cirrus was. Uh, one of our family homes was on a street called Cloudview, mm-hmm. and so we're like, oh, let's do something with clouds, you know, it'd be cool, to remind us of the, of the home, you know, and so we did about a thousand different uh, cloud um, iterations, mm-hmm. um, and my dad came up one day with Alto Cirrus, and I was just like, like, that's it, that's the one, <laughs> um, and, and it, it works on a levels that I still think of like you know I was just thinking about it last week I was like oh yeah that that makes sense too uh, so like um, I like I like Alpine wines I really like Alpine wines um, I love wines that are from you know Alto Adige Alto Piemonte you know and then you know uh, Alp wines you know the Jura and you know there was that that restaurant Gruner and mm-hmm. Gruner's whole thing was following the trajectory of the Alps all the way through Europe so. Uh, Yeah, mountain wines are really cool. And I I grew up snowboarding, so I'm, you know, have this sort of like fantasy of like, you know, snowboarding and growing grapes at the same time. Anyway, um, (laughs) so, uh, and then the other thing that that I just realized the other day was that uh, New Zealand, uh, the Maori name is Aotearoa, which means land of the long white cloud. So I was like, oh, that ties into the history of New Zealand as well. So I was really stoked at kind of like making that connection, so, you know, I, I've had I've had people that like the original meaning of their label isn't relevant anymore. So then they reinvent it year after year mm-hmm. after year. So I think that's kind of cool too. Like it doesn't have to be one thing. It doesn't have to be like it can be fluid. It can be dynamically changing. Um, yeah.
1: So as you make the decision, tell me about sourcing grapes. Tell me about finding a winery space. Right. Tell me about all the like right. logistics that you right. have to do to to get off the ground.
0: Well, I mean, uh, first off, like. So stoked to be here at day camp and um, Bri- the way the, what Brianna's is doing for us all here uh is incredible you know she's kind of created this incubator that um, is a really safe free space to for experimentation for um you know wacky ideas like there's nothing too too weird. Uh, for her, you know, be like, yeah, well, this is what I want to do. I mean, I probably, there probably are limits, but um, <laughs> but we haven't tested those limits yet. So far, it's been really cool. And, you know, just the the camaraderie of the campers here and um, yeah, it's just, it's great. It's great. So uh, that, I mean, really that has been such an integral part of, of why the brand has uh, grown the way it has. Mm-hmm. Um, sourcing wise, uh, you know, I go back to high acid wines. So wines that do not metabolize their acid slowly. So I, t- I try to choose sites that, that will have the acid that I'm looking for at picking time so that I don't have to add as much acid as I normally would. Um, you know and that kind of gets into the natural wine mm-hmm. movement right now and uh, I got a lot of opinions on that. Um, but uh, you know I, I, I do think that like my wines are less problematic and kind of follow my process better if they are organic grown. Mm-hmm. Um, I really think that we need to be uh, as ha- uh, we need to be farming differently. We need to be farming better. We need to, uh, you know, make. And that not that being said, there are so many wonderful farmers out there. I'm not I'm not saying that you know they everyone needs to do this, but um, I don't. Know, but there, but there are certain vineyards that I work with that I'm just like, this has everything I'm looking for. Um, you know, my my sort of. Most high-priced wine I'm just about to release is from Meredith Mitchell Vineyard, uh, and I just love it. It's got its own rooted. It's old vine Pomard, It is. It never lacks acidity. Um, you know, it's just it just it does everything naturally that that I want to do from a wine. So I think that that vineyard selection is so important for you to sort of symbiotically grow with with the wine that you want to produce. Um, so you know, growing the wine is difficult. Selling the wine is difficult making the wine, you just have to not mess it up. That's all that is important.
1: (laughs) So you're doing, you're doing kind of uh, sort of standard Oregon grapes, I guess, for lack of a better word, but you're doing some interesting things with them. So tell me about some of the, you talk about some of the experiments, some of the happy accidents, I guess. Tell me about some of the other things you're you're doing with your wines.
0: I mean, I'm not trying to do anything too crazy. Um, I do like, you know, I think, I think we're kind of in this in this time of non-binary winemaking, so you don't need to follow a certain standard for red wines or red grapes you don't need to follow a certain standard for white grapes um, you kind of can take all those processes and then input in, or plug into it the grape that you want and the process that you want so um, i'm really excited to see what we're doing with orange wines i'm really excited to see what we're doing with Sort of rosés that are not an afterthought, but rosés that are like intentional and you know, uh, really like you know, treating treating a rosé the way you would a a chardonnay or you know any sort of like really intentional white wine. Mm-hmm. I think that's really cool. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm really not doing anything too too insane and too crazy. I just try to do, but I am I am skipping a lot of steps. So like, I don't really rack my wine ever. Um, unless it's really reductive, and then only if I have to. Um, so, I, I mean, I'll do things, but only as a last resort. Mm-hmm. If, 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 I can, if I can... If the conditions exist for me to do nothing, that's what I'd like to do. <laughs> um, partially because, you know, I don't really like doing busy work, but also because, like, I think that you're only doing those... Well, a lot of times you know those things to make the wine better, but also you're doing those things to... Prevent issues. Mm-hmm. So if you don't need to prevent those issues because they're not there, then you don't need to do them, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not. There's no dogma for me. I, I've i found a lot of natural winemakers, um, traditional winemakers, people that that really believe their process, which I is passion, you know, which is beautiful. Um, but they're they're not open to other suggestive methods. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't ever wanna close myself off from that. Um, if a wine needs to be filtered, if a wine needs um, you know, factory yeast, if anything like that, I, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to honor the work that has been put into those grapes to get it to that point where they enter the winery. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really disrespectful for me to see someone uh, not honor the hard work that's already happened to the grapes by the time they get to the winery because 99% of the hard work has been done by then anyways. So, that being said, winemaking is still hard.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I want to I talk about the, before we get back to your brand, because I have some more questions about mm-hmm. starting, but I, <laughs> I'm curious, you, you talk about giving the wine what it needs and, and having the kind of the toolbox, the options there. Tell me about the, developing the confidence to know, uh, to know what a wine needs and to know what it is you can do to help it maximize that, that potential.
0: I wouldn't say it's confidence. Um, I would say it's more more of a faith issue, of I think I think it'll be okay. Like you, you need a little bit of luck. You need a little bit of like a little bit of risky behavior to be like we're we're gonna we're gonna see what happens on this one. You know, like you you know you, you press a beautiful uh, press load of Chardonnay and then you just put it in a barrel and you're like it will ferment. You know, and then and there's that moment of like it ferments a couple days later than you wanted to and you know you're kind of just like oh okay you know and and like so you can always step in and be like okay this is it's past the time that I'm comfortable with let's step in but that comfort level grows every year because it was like oh you know it I waited seven days last year let's try eight days let's try nine days you know let's try this because so I think it's more of like a like a um, experiential basis it's not it's never confidence but it is an experiential uh sort of index that you you start to build um, and then there's also just, you know, palate preference. And I think mean, that's the coolest part about wine is that it can be all things to all people. Um, there's, no, there's no one type and there's no, there's no empirical right way to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone has their opinion of, the, of that way, but, you know, there's no way to prove that opinion is the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that about it. I like the multiplicity of it.
1: So getting back to Altosuris and, and, and building up, so tell me about first year sort of size and, and style and what, what you've done to expand, expand since then. So,
0: so the first year was really small. I only did two and a half tons of grapes. I did three wines from it, um, you know, and, and it was very, very much uh, an improvisation. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I love the 2017s now, but they freaked me out. They were I was so scared about releasing them. Um, it took me a year and a half to get the kind of, momentum to be like okay we can release these now like these finally they're they're figuring out what they are now um but like the rosé re-fermented in bottle and you know the 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 pinot was was so under not under extracted but very lightly extracted that it it almost looks like a rosé like I always joke to people that I made three different (laughs) rosés in 2017 and um but you know the the coolest part is that people dig them, like I, you know I've gotten a lot of orders, i've gotten a lot of reorders. the reorders get me the most excited because they're like, "Oh, it's gone, I want some more of it, you know um, but I think drinkability is very important, so um, yeah, I, I find that seventeens are drinkable they're really they're delicious' they're, they don't, you don't' have to take them too seriously, but they're delicious and they're yummy and they're affordably priced and I, to me, those are all really good things about wine i I really like wines that are. Affordable and delicious and drinkable and and made honestly, you know, mm-hmm. that's cool. But yeah, the, uh, you know, so th- there, So I did three wines. I did a rosé from Underwood Mountain. I did a Romato from Underwood Mountain, and I did a uh, Pinot Noir from Leah's Vineyard in the Shadow Mountains. Um, and uh, you know, the rosé was smoke affected, so there's that as- aspect. It, it also didn't finish primary fermentation so it re-fermented in the bottle so it's a little bit like it's it's not a pet nap but it's like kind of fuzzy not fizzy is, is a joke that I say um, and then you know I, I, I never really liked Pinot Gris that much so I was like why am I making Pinot Gris like and then I was like okay I gotta do something to the Pinot Gris at least to like you know make it something that I'm interested in rather than just one criticism I do have of Oregon wine country is that uh, the Pinot Gris has been kind of a, a a bland, ubiquitous, um, formulaic process. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of people are changing that. I think the way Irie has always made Pinot Gris is beautiful. Um, I think the way that Ross Malouf is making wine right now with focusing on Pinot Gris is cool because he has access to all these amazing vineyards because no one really wants the Gris. And he's like, yeah, I'll take it, this is great. Like, original vine Irie. yes, sure, give me some of that, you know? I think that's beautiful, I think that's like a really, a uh, brilliant way to, to res- recreate things. Um, where was I going? Oh yeah. So so the and and I didn't really like Pinot Gris that much. The Romato turns out to be one of my favorite wines of the three. It's a lot of my friend's favorite wine of the three, and it's like it's really cool. So it's like okay, you can you can learn from these things, you know. Um, these preconceptions that you have about about wine um, can change, and and you know you can learn you can learn from, we're not old dogs yet, you know, we can all, we can all learn different things, so, um, yeah, and then, so, so, I've branched out, I've, um, gone against the grain a little bit and focused more on Pinot Noir than a lot of people are, uh, everyone knows P- Oregon Pinot doesn't sell in Portland, and, uh, it's hard, it's a hard grape, but it, I love it, I mean, it's still, it's, it's why I came to Oregon in the first place, it's, you know, in the right hands is just this incredible, beautiful, uh, easy drinking, uh, complex, conundrum of a wine. So, you know, I've gone back to that a little bit, um, but I still do all kinds of weird stuff. Well, not weird stuff, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah, still experiments. I I have a skin contact Viognier that I'm trying to figure out right now that um, is kind of fun. It doesn't taste like a skin contact wine, so I'm like, wow, this is weird. Um, And, You know, just trying to figure out what I want to do, what I don't want to do, like re-examining my my preconceptions from before. Um, You know, whether I do want to filter the wine, whether I do, you know, whether I do add acid, whether I, you know, all those things. Mm -hmm. Um, I've definitely come to the point now where I'm I'm only working with biodynamic or organic growers. Um, I had a a mentor from Australia uh, just get diagnosed with cancer from uh, glyphosate use. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just think, it needs to go. Um, I, I'd love to see Oregon uh, live certification be glyphosate free. I think that would be really cool. Um, you know, you don't. I don't want to tell people what they can and can't spray in their vineyard, but if it's going to give you cancer, I think it's better for you not to not to spray it. You know, I think it's better for everyone for that reason. So, um, yeah, that's, that's probably my only my only soapbox that I'm on right
1: now. <laughs> You talked about uh, finding people who responded to your wine I'm, I'm curious uh, have you found have you found is there a niche that you have are there people are there certain certain people certain age certain place certain that respond or are you finding a fairly good spread of people?
0: well it, it depends i mean I, I think I think with with people that are more conventional wine drinkers, a lot of the wines do challenge um, you know it 's a little cloudier than they want it's a little you know weirder than they're expecting. Um, fuzzier. Yeah, a bit fuzzier, yeah, exactly. Um, but even with the, those are the ones that I really love uh, drinking the wine with because uh, they will challenge me and I will challenge them back. And so we'll sort of negotiate a little bit, which is fun. Um, and you know, when, when someone, when you go into a situation and someone really doesn't want to like your wine and they, and they come out of it really enjoying it, that, that feels really good. Um, I, I love turning no's into yes. Kind of been a, a theme in my life, so um, but you know, like I, I've gotten some some great support from the Portland uh natural wine scene. I mean, it's it's been really cool. Uh, I just finished doing Portland's I guess one of their first natural wine fairs, oh, uh, the right. Wild
1: Bunch, yeah, just last last weekend, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, and um, it was really fun. It was really like I'm still my head's still kind of spinning from it, um, just because seeing so many people, I mean, I think 600 people came through and, um, you know, got so many reviews but a lot of support and it feels really nice to have the support, it feels really good. I wasn't expecting as much support with it as I'm getting, which makes me really happy, makes me feel good.
1: So what's it like starting a brand right, I mean, not right now, but you started in the last five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's it like starting a brand? Terrifying.
0: (laughs) Absolutely terrifying. Um, especially, you know, like now with with the coronavirus and everything that's going on, and sort of the the us all like almost kind of like re-examining what social interaction looks like. I mean, we're not we're not able to go to basketball games anymore this year. Like that's weird. Um, so yeah, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. I'm I'm kind of thinking like I I really hope that I'm I'm around in ten years to be able to you know keep doing this. But but. That being said, um, success for me is being able to make wine again. Every year that I can make wine is a successful year. Mm-hmm. And it's always been that way before the coronavirus or after, you know, it's just, if, if you can make wine, it's a successful year. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, can, if you can sell enough of the previous vintage or the previous two vintages to continue the passion, to continue the journey, um, to me, that's, that's all I'm, I'm really looking for. Right now, at least. Um, so, uh,
1: health fears and scares not, uh, uh, notwithstanding, yeah. What are the other What are the bigger other big stumbling blocks uh, for starting a brand right now? For especially starting a small kind of niche mm-hmm. brand like you're you're going with here, uh, it, what, what's what's the market like right now? For-
0: um, I'm really excited about the market right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very pluralistic. It's very uh, broad. There's a lot of different people out there, there's a lot of different voices, and uh, I sort of almost, maybe not, but I I like to pretend that it's like uh, CBGB in the 70s in New York, you know, where, you know, hip-hop's starting, and punk rock is starting, and new wave is starting, and all these beautiful styles of music are are just in their infancy, Mm -hmm. and we haven't factioned yet, we haven't gotten too much dogma involved we're still experimenting we're still things are still fresh um, and I hope we can keep it that way as long as possible because uh, the more dogma that's involved the more factions that grow uh, the less that our community is going to um, benefit in my opinion uh, so I'm, I'm stoked I'm it's like I've been waiting for this moment in wine for the past 10 years. You know, I've, it, it's been, it's been kind of, there's there, there was a seed planted a long time ago that's taken a while to germinate. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really excited to see it germinating now, you know, and growing and thriving. Um, so that's really cool. I'm really stoked about it.
1: You talk about both kind of your philosophy of winemaking, uh, kind of the less is more uh, yeah, yeah. approach. And yeah. your willingness to take experiment. I'm, I'm curious, um, what, what's the ultimate takeaway Someone could have from a bottle of your wine. You talk about you talk about nos and the yeses, but I'm curious yeah, yeah, like yeah. what's the ultimate response someone could have to, to drinking your wine?
0: Well, so I there, there's a there's a guy in New Zealand that I tasted with, and he goes, I don't want people to talk about my wine when we're when we're sitting around drinking and eating food. Like I want I want the wine and the food to springboard into a more interesting conversation. So if if uh, if you drink a bottle of of Alto Cirrus and you know fall in love or talk about something really interesting with someone else or you know create a situation that uh, you remember, that's that's my goal. Um, scores aren't that important. Uh, you know, I've I've been I've been to so many dinners where we open way more wine than anyone should ever open in one night and. Uh, you know, it's all really expensive wine, and you know, it's it's sort of it's sort of really ego driven, and uh, and then there are other nights where you drink a five dollar bottle of vino verde, you know, with a salad, and it, you you can capture a beautiful moment, um, and those mo- those moments are way more important to me than the ego driven nights. So um, I think the more we can distance ourselves from ego in the wine community, the better. We'll, we'll all be. We'll all be better off for it. Um, so that we can focus on what's really important, which is love and friends and family. And, you know, good moments. So
1: I'm gonna come back to something you just talked about a second ago about the kind of the, the moment, the Oregon wine moment we're in right now and, and the seeds being planted. So tell me what does Oregon wine look like right now in twenty twenty? What 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 is that moment that you're seeing?
0: Well it's sort of blurry. I mean there's no there's no one one there's no one one picture of what it is I mean it's so many things to so many people you know it, it depends who you're asking depends on uh, you know the situation that you're talking about all that stuff um, but I think multiplicity is really important, and I think that the fact that it is broad it's very um, it can be broad. I mean, I know. I know there's there's a, a group of people that say, you know, we still need to have Pinot Noir be the be the predominant grape variety. It still needs to be, and and it is our bread and butter. I mean, let's let's be honest with that. And and it should be. It's a it's a good grape for the area, but you know, then you get to uh, someone like Chad Stock and him saying, you know. I don't know if Pinot Noir is Oregon's best grape variety, and um, that's pretty cool too. You know, I think I think there's room for both of those arguments. Um, I love Willamette Valley Syrah. I think that could be the future. You know, like, especially if we warm up a little bit. Um, that could, you know, we're we're actually on a longitude or yeah, longitude that's closer to the Northern Rome than it is to Burgundy. Um, so we all love to say that we're on the same parallel as Burgundy, but we're not quite, we're a little bit south of Burgundy. Um, so, I mean, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is it can be, it can be a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, to me, to us here, to a lot of my peers, um, it means pushing boundaries, it means uh, changing preconceptions of what wine should be or what wine can be, mm-hmm. um, and it means challenging social norms. Mm-hmm. And I'm really happy to, to see those things happening.
1: So what's it going to look like 10
0: years from now? No idea. No clue. I I, I mean, I was listening to NPR the other day, and there's a science fiction writer on, and he said, uh, we don't talk about the future anymore. Uh, there is no future the way that there used to be. Um, and it's really, it's kind, of, it's kind of sad, but it's kind of scary. But um, we're at this moment where so many things are being challenged, so many things are being... Um, being dissected and, and analyzed, that um, we're waiting for the data to come back, and and there's still no there's still no uh, no ability to understand what's coming next, mm-hmm. um, which is scary. It's really scary. But uh, I think we we'll, we might all be better off for it for this experience um, if we can pull our heads out of our asses and you know kind of all come together as a as a you know single organism like we are.
1: So what would your, if if you could sort of, uh, your hope, what what would you hope Oregon wine is in in the future? And maybe what are you afraid it might be?
0: Um, I mean, I'm not afraid of it being anything. Um, I hope that it's honest, that it is from the heart, that it is um, driven by by beauty and by truth. Well, not truth, I don't like that word. Uh, By... uh, Passionate opinion, maybe. Um, you know, and just, just that it, it doesn't become about production, about uh, monetization, about, um, you know, bottom line only. And that's a, that's a very important part of the whole thing, but there needs to be more than that. Um, there needs to be beauty, there needs to be art, there needs to be creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope we're able to mix all those all those elements together to create something that's functional and sustainable
1: what about for yourself and your brand as you look ahead what's what's next for for you and for I
0: also I'm not sure I'm really not um, I have a new idea every day uh, <laughs> you know and half of the time I really struggle with with uh, seeing myself in America um, right now I it's just I, I would like to live in a country that's more representative of n- me um, I don't feel very very seen here and uh, you know i don't I don't want to feel like a commodity as much as I do right now so if I can find if we can if we can find a place that you know in America that you know that would be perfect I, I don't want to leave my family i don't want to you know i i, I don't want to see i want my friends to stay here and be with me and all that stuff but i mean i' i'd seriously consider moving back to new zealand Mm -hmm. um but that being said the grass is always greener right so you kind of got to do the best with what you got right here um so i mean i'd I'd love for alto cirrus to to grow a little bit to become self-sustainable to be profitable um to not have to worry as much about uh salary and things like that Mm -hmm. Um, but right now like i said before if i can make wine every year that's really that's really important to me, and that's really kind of how I gauge my success.
1: Mm-hmm. So, is there something out there that you want to work with that you are? is kind of on the top of the wish list—a varietal. Or oh man, style? if I
0: could get some more Chardonnay and some more Syrah, <laughs> life would be good. Um, I, if I mean, if I would get to the point where I'm planting my own vineyard, um, I think I would plant Syrah, Chardonnay, Melon, and Gamay. Um, and I wouldn't plant Pinot, not because I don't want to work with it, but because there's so much Pinot already planted that sourcing it doesn't seem to be a problem, but sourcing all those other grape varietals uh, does. And that, that's in the Willamette Valley. I mean, if I was out in the gorge, I'd, there's a vineyard that I, that I've worked with in the past that I'd love to see. Norello Mascarlesi planted, uh, Mencia is a great variety out there. Um, there's a Spanish white grape called Trechadura that is just beautiful, that um, I'd love to see more of. I think Shenan is a good, a good uh, grape for out here. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we're, we're doing all those things, which makes me really happy. So that's really cool, that's really cool. And when all else fails, just copy the Jura. That's all you need to do.
1: <laughs> uh, so if, uh, if if someone were to down the line or or even now see you as their their Steve Dorner, their like right, shining right. light yeah. they came to you and they asked for for advice on yeah. the Oregon wine industry. What would what would you tell them? What would your words of wisdom be?
0: Well, so the first day at Christum, uh Steve looked at me with kind of his smile that he does, and he's one of the most humble people I've ever met, which also adds to his charm, you know. Um, he goes. And, you know, I could be making this up. I'm not even sure if he said this, but in my brain, this is what... what, He looks at me and he goes, you want to know my secret? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? He goes, I just neglect the hell out of everything and everything seems to work just fine. Um, Which is total bullshit, but it's just his attitude is what I'm saying that that really... So um, first realizing that, that you can be your own Steve Dorner. You don't need... Like mentors are very important and mentors are really incredible for helping you realize your goals, but um, also just doing it yourself. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a punk rocker and I love DIY, you know? I think that's important. So, um, yeah, but um, I, I mean like also just open communication, open dialogue, you know? Like not being like, yeah, sure I can help you. Like, what do you need to know? What are, what are your issues? Let's talk, let's talk through them, you know? We can, we can all, like I, I'm a huge believer in a rising tide floats all boats that the, the healthier and the more happy everyone is, the better we're all gonna be, mm-hmm. so.
1: Right. Yeah. Last question for you, you've kind of touched on it already, but I kind of want you to think about it from this perspective. Uh, what is wine's role in society? Ooh, good question.
0: Um, I love that it's extraneous. We don't need wine. There's like, no one is gonna, they might be a little bit worse off if the wine wasn't there, but like, it's not necessary. You know, like it's it's necessary for for me to see beauty. It's necessary for me to uh, connect with people. I think I think the connection that I've had with people when we're drinking wine together and eating good food has been sort of the core of of what wine pl- the role that wine plays for me. Um, but you know there's also like I have to be honest I, I think overconsumption of wine is is a is a problem like it, it's not something that we should do a lot of so I think I think keeping it sacred is important and keeping it as as something you do on special occasions um, or at least only a little bit every day uh, is really important you know like I don't it doesn't need to be a sacrament or, by any means, but uh, there needs to be some sort of uh, respect and reverence for it um, and as long as you're you're respecting it i think uh most of those problems get avoided mm-hmm. yeah
1: that's all the questions that i have for you is there anything i should have asked that i didn't no
0: no i cover? i haven't talked this much in one sitting in a long time <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty
1: cool <laughs> i'm glad we gave you the opportunity yeah, thank to you so much yeah. so uh appreciate your time today yeah. appreciate your stories but, and your yeah. thoughts and uh we'll let you off the hook thank you